This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Contact them for all your Disney travel needs. Send them an email at communicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and tell them that we sent you. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I like when we take these little detour episodes and look at other theme parks that aren't Disney theme parks. Okay, good, because I was wondering where you were going would sound like a different type of detour. Oh, no, no, not like a driving detour or like a detour of the entire topic of the show, like Communicore Weekly, the Weekly Cheese podcast. Like, we're not doing that. Well, I thought it also it could be Detour 23. Detour 23 is actually a hilarious name for a con- convention that we probably have to... That's the Kuna Weekly convention. That'll be... It'll be Detour 23 is yes, what it'll be. Yes. Wow. So you guys heard it first here, unless you're listening to it a second time. Which you guys made a suggest. wrong turn. <laughs> so now you have to take a detour. <laughs> I guess. Wow, this... Okay. Speaking um, of detours, <laughs> this entire <laughs> intro took one. Let's, let's head a little bit of west from Orlando this time. But let's stop short of the ocean. It's time for the story. When we started to look at researching the histories of uh, Bush Gardens Tampa and Bush Gardens Williamsburg, we realized that the two uh, theme parks are a small part of the overall SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment Company, which operates 12 properties across the country, and five of them alone are in Florida, which is a lot in one state. Um, <laughs> and they have a very rich history that dates back over 100 years. But before we get started with the theme park business, we have to look at the Anheuser-Busch Company and its rise. You mean like yeast? I mean, kind of. You want to make bread puns. That's fine, too. Yeah, bread. Okay. So the the story starts back in St. Louis in 1852. George Schneider opened the Bavarian Brewing Company, and it went through a few expansions and then some financial difficulties. In 1860, it was sold to a local pharmacist named William Doench. We're not quite sure. And a German-born soap maker named Eberhard Anheuser. And in 1869, Doench was bought out by Adolphus Bush, who had emigrated to, uh, from Germany in 1857 and married Anheuser's daughter, Lily, in 1861. Now, Adolphus would make a lot of changes that would uh, cater to the company's success. He was the first American brewer to use pasteurization, which actually kept beer fresh, which obviously we all want fresh beer. Um, <laughs> he also introduced a mechanical refrigeration and refrigerated railroad cards. Um, and they were also the first to bottle beer, which, along the, with the ability to transport it uh, via rail, it increased the demand for American beer. And Budweiser, which was introduced in 1876, was considered the first national beer. Okay, so Eberhard Anheuser passed away in 1880, and the Bush family took total control of the company, with Adolphus becoming the president. And the company would be named the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Association. The company would survive the Prohibition movement by making brewer's yeast, ice cream, malt extract, and Bevo, or Bevo, 
Bevo, probably, a non-alcoholic malt beverage. In 1959, Anheuser-Busch created the Bush Entertainment Company to run the Bush Garden uh, Park located outside Tampa, near its brewery. They offered tours of the facilities and free samples, which, of course, who doesn't like free samples of beer? Um, the park near Williamsburg opened in 1975, near the brewery, and was one, it was more of a, a theme park from the very beginning. The Tampa Park would grow into a theme park over the years. Um, in 18, 1889, Anheuser-Busch purchased the SeaWorld Parks from publisher Harcourt uh, Brace Jovanovich. Um, this also included the boardwalks and baseball, which I know a lot of people remember fondly still. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, those all closed immediately. And Cypress Gardens, which they sold in 1995, and it, which would eventually become uh, Legoland. Okay, so in 2008, the Anheuser-Busch companies, including many breweries across the globe, would be bought by InBev a Belgian-Brazilian brewing company. And in 2009, the theme park division was sold to the Blackstone Group and SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment was formed. Blackstone bought the parks for $2.7 billion and part of the deal included keeping the Busch Gardens name for the Tampa and Williamsburg properties in perpetuity. So how did Anheuser-Busch get into the theme park business? Well, we have to travel to 1904 and visit Pasadena, California to find that out. Uh, Adolphus and Lily arrived at Pasadena in their 80-foot-long uh, Pullman car. Um, they rented 10 rooms at the Hotel Raymond, and it was announced a few weeks later that they purchased a property overlooking the Ario Seco Canyon. And they built an English-style mansion as their winter home on the two acres there. But they also had primary residence in St. Louis, um, a home in Cooperstown, New York, in a retreat near uh, Weisenbach, Germany, that was called Villa Lily. So the property was based uh, on a ravine and needed a lot of work to create the terraces. And eventually, Bush Gardens, as it was known in the early 20th century, would encompass the upper gardens, the lower gardens, and the annex. The upper gardens were 14 acres of very formal Victorian gardens that were actually open to the public in 1906. The 16 acres of the less formal lower gardens were opened in the late spring of 1906. Lily wanted to recreate a fairy tale garden similar to their villa in Germany and it included many fairy tale figurines and settings. Both the upper and lower gardens were open seven days a week free of charge by July 1909. The lower gardens would become a very popular spot. Um, film companies actually loved the wooded setting they had there. Um, Frankenstein, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and Gone with the Wind, they all had filming locations there. And there were also Easter egg hunts for orphans and fundraisers. Uh, they also had dog shows, carnivals, concerts, and a political rally or two. The annex was an 11-acre parcel that had its own deer park and gardens when Adolphus bought it in 1910. It was at the time, it had California's largest home and it was built in 1891 for Professor Thaddeus Lowe, which is a great name for a professor. Yes, it is. Um, it was a 24,000 square foot home, and that home eventually would serve as accommodations for the extended Bush families and was the site of the very lavish 50th wedding anniversary of Adolphus and Lily. Sadly, Adolphus passed away in Germany in 1913, and his wife offered the land to the city of Pasadena multiple times and each time the city refused because of the cost of maintaining the, the gardens. So the 36-acre property was subdivided in 1936, and the original Bush Gardens was closed in 1938. 
Obviously, the Bush family would open up the Tampa Brewing facilities for tours, and that would be the genesis of the Bush theme parks. Still, each one of these parks, you know, really needs a history of its own um, because they're so extensive. But for the rest of this segment, you know, we're just going to take a look at the other two properties that Bush opened and then sadly had to close. In Van Nuys, California, which is about 20 miles west of Pasadena, where the original Bush Gardens was, Anheuser-Busch opened a brewery in 1954. So after the success of the Tampa facility in 1959, which offered a beer garden and bird sanctuary, Anheuser-Busch decided to offer the same at the Van Nuys facility. So in 1966, Bush Gardens Van Nuys, I keep saying that differently, <laughs> we'll just call it Bush Gardens Los Angeles, Fair enough. was opened on a 17-acre cabbage patch adjacent to the brewery. <laughs> the perfect place for a theme park. Exactly. Um, so just like Tampa, a beer garden and bird sanctuary were offered first. And as the popularity grew, they expanded with an additional five acres. And part of the expansion included a monorail that snaked around the grounds and actually through the brewery. In addition to the attractions, the biggest draw was the free beer, because again, who doesn't love free <laughs> beer? Um... <laughs> Bush's policy was that visitors, visitors can get two 10-ounce glasses at each of the five pavilions on the property. My mind is blowing right now because that's a that lot of free beer. a lot of beer. That is a lot of beer. Um, so based on the research, there was no fee at first. And at some point, probably around the expansion they did in 1972, there was a $1.75 admission fee that eventually would triple before the park closed. So there were 2,000 birds that represented over 25 different species, including, because you know we love our lists, flamingos, toucans, macaws, storks, swans, herons, egrets, penguins, and more. There were bird shows, bird-focused tours, and educational opportunities centered around birds. But <laughs> the park wasn't all for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, so uh. clever. Um, <laughs> So besides the monorail, which pretty much circled the whole park and the brewery, there were some other attractions as well. The Yahoo Flume Ride was one of the most popular attractions, and eventually wound up at Great Escape Amusement Park in New York. Um, couldn't find a real confirmation, but we're assuming it was an arrow uh, log flume ride. And there was also a speedboat ride and the tropical cruise. So, sadly, the park costs couldn't keep up with the dwindling attendance. People still came for the free beer, but the 1972 expansion cost over $4 million and the crowds never really materialized. The park was officially shut down in 1976 and operated as a, quote, sales promotional facility, end quote. Beer samples were still free and there was a $1 charge for parking and $1 charge for the tropical boat cru uh, tropical cruise boat ride, which toured the various habitats. And the birds became the primary focus in 1977, and Bush Gardens Los Angeles became, or operated as, a bird sanctuary. So you could still tour the brewery, which featured a recorded narration by Ed McMahon, and you could take the tropical, the tropical uh, cruise boat ride. Um, there were still at least uh, 1,500 birds, many of which just walked freely, freely throughout the park because, I mean, it was their park. Yeah. Um, but in 1979, many of the birds were relocated to the L.A. Zoo and the two East Coast theme parks. Uh, the gardens were actually paved over, and the brewery itself was expanded. So to this day, there are still birds, mainly parrots and some of the other exotic species, that uh, escaped 
from Busch Gardens, Los Angeles, and can be seen and heard in the Van Nuys area. So refugees from Busch Gardens, no doubt. Uh, now let's move east to Texas and look at another defunct Busch Gardens property located in Texas. And this one is called Busch Gardens Houston. So Anheuser-Busch uh, built a brewery in 1966, the same year as the one in Los Angeles. And right away, planning for a garden park began, and it opened in May of 1971. And, you know, this was an 11 to $12 million park that spanned 40 acres, 12 of which alone were just dedicated to parking. That is a lot of parking. Yeah. Um, and they offered a lot of similar attractions to the other counterpart. Um, and the overall theme of the Busch Gardens Houston was, this is a great one, guys, Asia. Yeah, because that totally makes sense in the middle of Texas. Totally, you know, except for the part that had penguins and polar bears. Yeah, so one of the two main attractions was a boat ride that actually covered two-thirds of the park. It included passages through the ice cave, which obviously where the penguins were, and the free flight aviary. The uh, boat ride actually took you by islands that had monkeys, elephants, deer, Bengal tigers, rhinoceros, bears, and cat cubs, which we're assuming are like lion cubs, but I never got confirmation. <laughs> and uh, there were also antelope, yaks, camels, and lesser pandas. What does that mean? I have no idea. I was thinking they just maybe, I don't know, were less one color than the other. It doesn't matter. So, uh, and there was an area where the children could pet lambs, goats, and llamas, because you don't want them petting pandas and tigers and rhinoceros. Um, and unless they pet the lesser pandas, I don't know, maybe. Yeah, that could be. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah. There was also a train modeled after the English steam trains that were used in Asia in the 19th century. And, you know, you can walk through most of the park as well. One of the big draws, again, you know, beside the free beer for the adults, was the 950-seat amphitheater with bird shows performed at least three times daily. And the park operated seven days a week during the 1971 and 1972 summers. And it was only open on weekends during the 1971 winter and closed by December 1972 due to uh, falling well below the expected 800,000 attendance levels. Yeah, so obviously it was quite a shock to me to find out about Bush Gardens, Los Angeles, and Houston in the original Bush Gardens. And all their free beer. And everything that they had, yeah. So, um, but we're going to take a, a breather for a couple weeks and come back with more stories about Bush Gardens, Tampa, and Williamsburg. But we want to know what you think. Or, or if, did you ever get a chance to visit Bush Gardens, Houston, or Bush Gardens, Los Angeles? We want to know what you maybe think about those parks. Give us a call on the CommuniCore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, so Jeff, did you ever read a book that you'd wish you'd written? Yes, all the time. Okay, good, good. That's all. That's all we need to know about. So um, <laughs> that's it. And it, oh, no, just kidding. We'll keep going. So uh, <laughs> this week's book is The Hidden Histories of Walt Disney World, second edition by Kevin Yee. And he did release this book last year, unfortunately, in 2014. But with the Christmas releases that we got from Disney, it sort of slipped and I forgot to review it. But this is one of those books that I wish I had written. Um, so before I get too involved with the review, if you love trivia and history of Walt Disney World, then you need to pick up this book. Reason number one. Reason number two, if you love the five-legged goat segment of our show, 
then you need to pick up the book. And I'll end the review segment with the third reason, sort of, I hope. So, unless Jeff confuses me. I'm confused okay. already. I know, that's fine. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Yi has been writing about the Disney Company since 2000, and he's been writing and publishing books since 2004. And we reviewed his earbooks that he's done over a couple of shows, and they are really works that are going to be priceless in a few years for Disney enthusiasts and Disney historians. And Yi also wrote Mousetrap, which was a memoir of his time spent working as a Disneyland cast member. And it's quite insightful, very humorous, and I will never, ever stop laughing about clam chowder. But you gotta read the <laughs> That's all. Um, so if anyone is qualified to write a book about the hidden history of Walt Disney World, then it is Kevin Yee. He visits the theme parks many times a month, if not every weekend, and he is incredibly quick to pick out the new hidden details that a lot of us miss. So Yee's book is on the, uh, on the resort, Walt Disney World Resort, is divided among the different parks, of course, and other areas as well. The largest section is devoted to the Magic Kingdom, which makes the most sense since the Magic Kingdom is the most detailed, the most layered, and the oldest of the parks. And so Yi goes land by land and attraction by attraction and offers a color photo more to place the detail in your mind, uh, along with a very thorough history of the, the detail. And, you know, Yi goes a bit further than most uh, Disney guides, and he's able to tie the entire history of the Disney company, as well as its many arms, to uh, into the specific item detail. And, you know, Yi can offer, he often delves into the rationale behind the history, offering even more insight than you'd normally get. And he offers more than just the details of the tribute as well. He'll, you know, sometimes tackle, you know, who was the designer and maybe what the designer was thinking about. You know, for instance, Imagineer Jason Grant designed the colorful banners that hang uh, outside of Interventions. And he added a shape of stairs to the banners to honor the stairway that's in the people mover at the Magic Kingdom. You know, the one that's on the load platform that sort of seems to go nowhere. Jason had been obsessed with them since he was a child and found the chance to include them uh, in the banners and sort of make one of his dreams come true. And this book is full of amazing tidbits that no one else really has the breadth of knowledge to even cover. And it, it is more than just Walt Disney World. Uh, Yee offers a few pages on some of the hidden history of Universal as well, and he offers a listing of when the attractions at Walt Disney World premiered or were closed. And honestly, this is a book that every Walt Disney World fan should own. And my third reason, which I didn't forget to talk about, and I'm going to get on my soapbox, um, Yee is an academic by training and believes in verifiable sources. He won't simply print something unless he can deign that it's true. Even, you know, if the internet believes it to be true with all of its heart, um, and even if it's not, he explains why, and he documents, which is so important. We always, like, harp about, because we had some issues with other books where, you know, they just printed stuff, and obviously it was not true, but it, it's good that Kevin does. I, I very much appreciate that. I do, too. So if you love Walt Disney World and you want to impress your friends or you want to learn something because you will, then you need to pick up. Walt Disney World Hidden History, 2nd Edition, by Kevin Yee. Sometimes it's a one, sometimes it's a two. When you gotta go, what you gonna do? It's a bathroom break. A bathroom break. Have you wanted to use your own room 
to use the bathroom not like your own like personal bedroom where you i should rephrase that okay let me start let me start that again okay have you ever wanted your own room to use the bathroom okay that sounds better um did it i hope so it's the bathroom okay. break it's fine okay so in some spots of disney you can have your own room um and one of those you know the bathrooms are just just off the grand california lobby in the disneyland resort uh, they're that you know as you make your way to downtown disney they're on your left hand side uh, they're beautiful, they're spacious, and they're usually not as crowded as the park restroom, which is always a plus. And the stalls are actual doors, not the half doors you find in <laughs> literally every other bathroom in you know, public restroom, I should say, in the world. Um, and once you open these doors, you're in your own little room, your own private room. Now, one or two of them may share that room with another person, but don't worry, there is, you know, a divider there between the two stalls. It's okay. Um, but some of them are, are individualized rooms, which is, you know, great. It's like a little apartment in there. Um, unfortunately, these toilets are of the intelligent kind, and they will flush when they think that you've been there long enough to try to get you to leave. Um, so no flushing on your own terms, unfortunately. But they are nice and spacious, and it's a nice transition into the hotel itself. I mean, it's pretty warm and inviting, and, I mean, your own little bathroom. How can you go wrong with that? Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. While inside Spaceship Earth at Epcot, you'll come to the computer mainframe scene with everyone's favorite go-go booted scientists. And it's also known as Communicore Weekly Headquarters as well. I mean, come on. Um, yeah. And on the right-hand side of that room, there's a sign that says, THINK in big, bold letters. THINK is the one-word motto created by IBM founder Thomas J. Watson in 1911, after he met some sales managers who just lacked ideas. Like, not even just good ideas, just ideas, period. Um... <laughs> So by the 1950s, the think sides, they all cluttered the desks and walls of literally every IBM office. And it also inspired an Apple catchphrase in the 1990s, which was think different when they were, you know, trying to compete against IBM. Wow. And, you know, we think different. Do we, George? Yes, that's why we are presenting the year of a million or so limited time cadets. Okay, I'll give you points no for that segue. No one has ever done a year-long celebration before. No. Right? No one ever has done that ever. at all, period. History of we think differently. Anyway, differently think, differently think. Yeah, we'll put it that way. That works we'll go that way. for that me. Way Apple will not sue us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Are we gonna get sued? I don't know. So anyway, there's still a couple. There's a handful of weeks left. We're almost to the end of this year, but you can still enter uh, the year of a million or so limited time cadets to win a prize. Uh, just send us an email with your name, your address, and your birthday month in it, and you will be entered to win. As of right after this episode, there are only three episodes left to win for season four. So get those emails in now. Uh, but this week's winner is going to win a prize pack, a Disney prize pack from Fairy Godmother Travel. Who knows what it's going to contain? It's going to be a grab bag, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but the winner this week is Kylie J from Kamas, Washington. Yay? I don't know. I, mean, I, no, I, we're I think excited I said it wrong. She won, but we're not excited because, of, once again, we don't know how to pronounce something. But hopefully somebody will tell us. So, Kylie J, yay! Hooray! Congratulations. I'm excited you won. But again, I just don't know how to pronounce Kamas. Camus, Camus, Camus. You're from Washington. That's all we know. <laughs> In the Washington up on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, not not DC. Columbia. The one yeah, near exactly. me. Wow, okay, so um, there's still time that you can enter. Don't forget to email communicorweeklygmail.com and enter the contest. So please do. Please do. Thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Leave us a comment on YouTube or rate us on iTunes or whatever. However you listen to the show, we want to hear from you and what you thought about this episode. 
Okay, yep. And email us again at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or just say, sup, Corey. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly hotline at 424-785-4628. And visit the Communa store on our website, which is communicoreweekly.com, where you can buy some awesome t-shirts. And if you want your official cadet membership card or Communicore Weekly sticker, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly to help support the greatest online show. And for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.